Hey, this is Scott. Thanks for checking out the podcast of Grace Fellowship Church. Hope it's encouraging for you and helps you take your next steps in your faith journey. Enjoy. Oh, I think I've had the chance to meet everybody, but in case I haven't, my name's Scott, the lead pastor here. We're really thrilled to have you here with us. And the series, here's what we're talking about. We're talking about relationship killers. So these are those things that have an inordinate amount of power and ability to really affect our relationships. So this would be relationships with spouses. This would be relationships with our kids, with friends, with our community. And last week, what we did was we looked at James, the brother of Jesus, really fascinating that he would follow his brother as Lord. And James has a book full of wisdom. And this is what James said. He asked the question, what causes quarrels and fights amongst you? So what's that source of the conflict that we often go through when we're in relationships with other people. So with your spouse, with your kids, like what is the thing that really drives that argument? And the thing is in our humanity, oftentimes what we'll do is we'll point to something outside of ourselves and say really what it is is if we just had more money. What it is, is if they could just understand my desires and my needs better, then we wouldn't be having this conflict. And so we point to things that are outside, but this is what James says. He says, don't they come from desires that battle within you? See, James was really wise, and he knew, he was onto something, that the reason that I'm upset about whatever it may be, it may not be the entirety of the reason, but at least a part of it is this, that I'm upset because I'm not getting what I want. James would say the problem is not always outside of ourselves, that the problem is really in here. Now later I'm gonna quote from a, a lot of experts, but we wanna start, and this shouldn't surprise you because we're in a church, right? And in a church we would expect these kinds of things, but what we're gonna do is I wanna start by looking at the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who is the source of it all, because he talks about something that comes from inside of us that really is a relationship killer that has an inordinate amount of power in our lives. This is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter five. He said this, he said, you have heard it was said that you should not commit adultery. Now, we know what adultery is. Adultery is when you have sex with someone that's not your marriage partner. And we would understand that. We get that because really if that happens, if there's adultery all of a sudden, I can't trust this person. They said they were gonna be faithful. They're not faithful to me. Um, is there, there's these re- weird things that start to happen with comparisons and why did they do this? And we get insecure. And so we can understand and recognize and say, yes, I agree with you, Jesus. Adultery is not a good thing. In fact, even people that aren't Christian would also agree in general, that's not a good thing for your life. So Jesus says, in the past you've heard, it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Joe, if you would pull the gain down on this just a skosh, thank you. Uh, Now, Jesus says that, and it's like, wait a minute, Jesus, hold on. I had you with the adultery thing, that makes sense to me, but now you're telling me it's not just my actions but it's the musings of my heart and my mind. Wait a minute, Jesus, I, I, I get the one thing, but that's unreasonable. Jesus would say, yep, yeah, because what you've gotta realize is just what James said, that your actions 
come out of what you think about and what you chew on. And you're a fool if you think that you can feast your eyes and your heart and your mind on someone other than your spouse. And it's not somehow going to destroy both you and your relationships. And faithfulness is not just about what you do, but it's about what's happening inside your heart, Jesus would say. This weekend, what we're talking about is this issue of lust, this issue of lust. Now, one of the values that we have as a church is that we're going to bring God's Word and let it apply to all the different areas of our life, from the boardroom to the bedroom to the bank account. It applies to all of that. And so we're going to talk about even human sexuality here this weekend, but we want to do it with candor and we want to do it with respect in an effort to really have a biblical understanding of this area that has so much power in our relationships, to see what God's Word has to say about it. Lust, if you just look up a definition of it, this is what it it means. It means a passionate and inordinate desire for something, often, but not exclusively, sexual in nature. A passion, a desire, it's this constant look, this constant longing for something other than what we have. So that I'm gonna, it's gonna motivate me and I'm gonna fixate on it and I'm gonna focus on this thing and I think if I have it, if I can just get it, it's gonna deal with the feelings that I'm having, these anxieties that I'm having, these struggles that I'm having. So I'm gonna fixate it. Lust is this lie, this, this lie that says the problem that you have in your life, you know what it is, is that you just don't have enough. You just don't have enough fun. You're not having enough sex. You're not having enough attention. You don't have enough stuff and toys and things to do. You don't have enough square footage in your home. And if you could just get that thing, your problems would be fixed. And James says, no, 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 no. The the problem isn't out there. The problem is in your heart. There's this desire. It's in you your lust, it's driving your passions towards this thing. And I would want to submit to you that as we talk about this area, that really those desires that we have, those desires that kind of trigger the lust to happen, those desires are actually God-given desires. So I would submit to you a definition to consider as we talk about lust this weekend and then later in life groups as we discuss this in a few weeks. And it's this, that lust is seeking to satisfy God-given desires with ungodly ways. Seeking to satisfy God-given desires in ungodly ways. So let's think about what that might mean. So there's desires that we've been given, things like companionship, in connection. That desire is not bad or wrong. God gave that to us. He created us. When God created Adam, he said, man, I had my A game when I, was, when I made you, but when I look at you, you're not complete. You need to have some sort of partner in life. You are made to have a companion. So God would say this desire that we have, it's not a bad thing, It's a good thing, but when I start to look for sexual companionship outside of what God designed to be the thing that ultimately will give us the kind of satisfaction satisfaction that we really need, that that becomes an unhealthy thing. And Jesus would say that's the source of adultery 
in your life. So at the root of that, at the root of lust and adultery and the sexual nature to it, there's this desire to have a sexual connection with another person. Now, God created us as sexual beings. He created that to be something that bonds a man and a woman in the context of a committed covenantal relationship. And when he created our sexuality, he looked at that and he said, this is good. This is beautiful. This bonds two people together in a way that almost nothing else can do that. Can I just tell you that the church has not always done a great job of representing that reality? When I was growing up, it was like if you have a desire for that, and maybe it wasn't true, but it's how I experienced it. Like if you have a desire for that, something's wrong with you, that's dirty, that's, that's something that's taboo. There was not a, a real celebration of what godly sexuality looked like. But when we look at what scripture actually has to tell us, it's not something that's dirty, it's something that's glorious and something that's beautiful. Our sexuality, however, is immensely powerful. It's so, it's so beautiful because it has such an ability to bond two people together, almost like unlike anything else. It is so powerful and it's a lot, if I can use a metaphor, it's a lot like a fire. Think about when you have a fire in a fireplace in your home. What does it bring? What does it, what does it do for us? It brings warmth. Yeah, it's, it's something that, that becomes a unifying force in that home. It does good. You can cook food over it. Or, you know, it, it serves a function. It serves a purpose. It's constructive. It's beneficial. But what happens if you take that fire out of the fireplace and put it on your carpet? What's it going to do? It's going to destroy things. It's going to burn and hurt and destroy. It's going to mess up your carpet for sure, right? This thing that was created to be in the context of a New Testament covenantal marriage between one man and one woman, when it's taken out of that context, and now it's sitting on the floor, now it just creates damage. It destroys. And it's not hard to consider examples of how that happens, why that happens, because at the bedrock of a relationship is trustworthiness and, found, and fidelity and faithfulness. And when this powerful thing that's supposed to bond a man and a woman in the context of marriage, when it's taken outside of that, until death do they part, and that's not honored, then all of a sudden there's all these insecurities. There's like, I don't know if I can trust this person ever again. Now they've bonded themselves with someone else. I don't know how to deal with that. It just creates a whole lot of mess. It breeds dissatisfaction, distrust, insecurity. Lust. Lust is seeking to fulfill God-given desires in ungodly ways. But I want to consider a very nuanced aspect of this. That using that understanding, that it's quite possible even, that lust can occur even in the context of a committed relationship. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, in the context of a relationship, if you are seeking to fulfill a God-given desire for connection or security or, or for relationship or sexual satisfaction, if you do that, even in the context of your marriage, in an ungodly way, so if you're manipulating, if you're lording over authority, if you're withholding 
something from someone else in order to get them to act the way that you want them to do. If you're saying, hey, this is a picture of something that I want and you need to conform to that and there's not mutual submission and mutual respect happening, that, as Christians, we would look and say, Philippians 2, I'm supposed to submit my well-being for yours that Christ said that, the, that as Christ gave himself up and sacrificed for the church, so should the husband sacrifice for the wife and the wife should love the husband. It's not this manipulative lording over kind of thing. So it's possible that even in the context of marriage that it can become a lustful, destructive thing because it's not being fulfilled in godly ways. Lust is often about sexuality, it's often about that, but it's not exclusively about that. Well, if you look at um, Exodus uh, chapter 20, this is the Ten Commandments, uh, God gives his heart to us. This is what he says, he says, uh, he says, Exodus 20 verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. Now that word covet is the Hebrew word shamad, and it has to do, and all the rest of the ways and places that it's used, it has to do with this desiring, kind of lustful desiring for something, right? And we would tend to think of it in terms of shall not cover your, covet your neighbor's wife. That's the sexual end of things. But he says you shouldn't covet or lust or desire after your neighbor's house or, or there's his support staff. Or his donkey or his ox. That's not a sexual thing. That's a, a material possessions kind of thing. Or anything that belongs to your neighbor. A lust is looking at something, coveting it, desiring something to be ours. And so it may be that sexual thing, but it might also be lusting and desiring after the new car that they just got. A square footage that they have in their house. And now they're going to do anything to get that. And so I'm going to, it's going to create this lustful, I have to have it kind of space in my heart. But it can also be things like acceptance. It can be things like safety, like a release of anxiety. I have this desire for my needs to be met. They're not evil needs for me to have things like significance or connection. But when I start to fill that need in ungodly ways, it becomes unhealthy. So what would that look like? Well, it's the person who deals with anxiety in their life. I have this need to, to not have anxiety right now. And lust says, man, you know what's going to make me feel better about myself? I'm just going to eat the, all, the whole bag of Oreos, right? I, I, I can't handle this feeling inside me I'm, I'm going to click the button and wait for the brown box to show up from Amazon on my porch because when something comes in, I get that dopamine hit and I feel better about things and now I can deal with this anxiety that I have in my heart. It's needing acceptance and connection with someone and seeking that through maybe an emotional affair. It's, it's, it's having these fantasies of romance that speak to your need to be wanted and pursued. And, and I used to have that in, this, in my spouse, but I don't have that anymore. And so I'm going to run to that kind of thing. Now, my life is an example of the sin of lust. Growing up, I had plenty of relationships with other uh, lady classmates, but for me, I had a, a crush on a few of them, but they never reciprocated that. And so what created in my heart and my mind was this concept of, uh, of longing and desiring for something, starting that was a glance at something that was pleasing to my eye, and it became a gaze of something in my heart. I was seeking to satisfy God-given desires in ungodly ways. 
And then in high school, on accident, I, I was doing a research paper and happened upon some illicit website, and this became a place of darkness and defeat for me, and that became a place where I would run to deal with my anxieties, and my thought was this, man, if I would just get married, it would solve the problem, right? But that's not true. That's a lie. And so I got married, and it wasn't but a couple years later where I had to go to my wife and make confession to her and to my faith community and say, hey, this is a, a problem that I have. I need help with this. And I'm grateful that a guy named Pastor Nathan Wells walked through a program called Setting Captives Free with me, and I was able to find freedom from this. But as a result of that experience, I've had regular and ongoing conversations, particularly with men, in this issue of purity and sexual sin. And I've had to deal with a lot of conversations about the, dam the damage of shame and the realities of lust and specifically the effects of porn on individuals. So I've learned a lot about this area. And what I found is that shame is this tool that the enemy uses to keep people oppressed. The enemy lied to me and the enemy lies to other people. And this is what the enemy says. You can't let anyone know about this. You are the only one that deals with it. If anyone finds out, they're not going to accept you. They're going to hate you. They're going to call your names. You're a pervert. You should stay in the closet. You're going to lose everything that's valuable to you. You just messed up again last night. You should just stay in that pit. And that's a lie from the pit of hell. It's a lie. I don't know if any of these statistics that I'm going to share with you are going to shock you, they probably won't. But I want to share some of these with you because I think it's going to help us see the nature of the beast with this, okay? Here are a few statistics. The average age that a child is exposed to pornography is 11. A few years ago, that was 13. And it's much lower than that. 47% uh, of families in the U.S. reported that pornography is a problem in their home. In fact, the University of Montreal tried to do a study on pornography. They had to cancel the study because they could not find a control group because they could find no men that have never watched pornography. They couldn't, they couldn't construct it. There was no one that could be the control group. And it's not just the culture at large, it's in the church as well. 68% of church-going men, uh, church men view porn regularly. And of young Christian adults, 18 to 24 years old, 76% actively search it out. Admittedly, I have a distinctly male viewpoint on this whole issue. When I meet and counsel with guys and maybe they're having challenges in their marriage, I intuitively think the guy's the problem uh, the women don't have these problems. They don't struggle with this at all. Uh, but I was surprised by the statistics and what it says that 30% of all visitors to Pornhub are women. 30%. 30%. even those who may not be drawn to the imagery are drawn to the fantasy of the written or spoken word that stirs up lust in their heart. Now get this number. This blows my mind. 87% of Christian women have viewed pornography. Christian women, not, in, not, not, pe not people out there, people in the church, people in the church. To quote my grandfather, who is now with Jesus, there are two kinds of people in this world, those who struggle with it and those who lie about it, right? Part of the lie that the enemy 
speaks to us is that, you know what, there's this area and it's just, an, no one else knows about it, it's just an issue of the heart, it's not going to creep into my relationship, but statistics again tell us that it has a huge impact. 56% of American divorces involve one party having an obsessive interest in illicit websites. NPR reported that porn usage doubled the chance of divorce. And many experts decry the porn industry as destroying healthy expectations and sexual performance among committed couples. And you might think this, well, you know what? I get it. Um, I'm not married. I don't intend to be in a relationship at any point in time. So I just, it doesn't apply to me much. Read a book called This Is Your Brain on Porn, and this is what it reported. And this, I hope this does something to our hearts. It says, today porn users are regularly diagnosed with and prescribed treatment for social anxiety, low self-esteem, concentration problems, lack of motivation, depression, and other conditions. They can even be told that their problem is definitely performance anxiety when they're unable to sexually perform without pornography. Some quietly suffer with panic that their sexual orientations have mysteriously morphed or that they must be closet perverts or that they will never be able to have a healthy sexual relationship because of their dysfunctions. Not to be an alarmist, but I read far too many recovery accounts that mention earlier suicidal thoughts. Disturbingly, research at Oxford University found that moderate severe addiction to the internet was associated with risk for self-harm. And another anecdote spoke of a gentleman who was really struggling with these sorts of things, took him to such a depth that he wanted to kill himself, but not just kill himself, but to to work out a Columbine-level tragedy because of how deep and how dark it took him. This book clearly lays out the correlation between born, uh, porn usage and sexual dysfunction in males. In fact, that problem uh, has created one of the biggest and oldest communities on Reddit, an online community. The oldest American community is a group of men and women who are trying to free themselves from the addiction to pornography and self-gratification. The book anecdotally reported on one of the members of that community. This is what this person said. I've battled a few addictions in my life, from nicotine to alcohol and other substances. I've overcome all of them, and this was by far the most difficult. Urges, crazy thoughts, sleeplessness, feelings of hopelessness, despair, worthlessness, and many more negative things were all a part of what I went through with this porn thing. It's a wicked, awful thing that I will never have to deal with ever again in my life. Ever. This is not a Christian book. These are not people that are coming from a biblical worldview, but they are oppressed. And listen, those may have been some extreme cases, but here's what I want the church to hear and to understand that people are under the burden of that. And the thing that that should do to our hearts is stimulate and stir up compassion for those who are in bondage to that. And not to be wagging a finger or saying, shame on you. It should stir up compassion and break our hearts. And maybe this weekend you could say, okay, but I'm not affected by that. That's not a problem that I have. Statistics will show that someone you love is affected by that. It may be your spouse, your siblings, or your children. And how we choose to react enables someone to, to have victory in this area. Now listen, lust is nothing new and nothing unique to our community. And you might think, you're kidding me? 
100 years ago, 1,000 years ago, people weren't walking around in Speedos and bikinis. They didn't have to deal with that at all. Look, there's nothing new about that, right? I, I remember one time heard this a person who was a blind man, and people were saying, this must be easy for you. You must never have to deal with lust. He goes, you kidding me? I can hear a sultry voice or the sound of high heels walking down, and it creates problems in my mind that I still have to deal with. It's born into the human soul. I want to look at a story of a hero of the faith, someone that we would hold up on the highest levels, and this was someone whose, whose life was nearly destroyed because of this issue of lust. If you have a Bible, turn it to 2 Samuel 11. 2 Samuel 11, this is King David speaking here. This is what it says. In the spring, at the time when the kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but Daniel, excuse me, David remained in Jerusalem. A little bit of history here. So they would regularly be at war and they would muster up all of the citizen men to go out and fight the battles, but they don't want to do it in winter uh, because it's harder on resources and you can imagine why it would be harder in winter, so they would wait for the spring. Now, usually the king would go out and lead the procession into this foreign war. They would never be caught in a place where they would be seen as a coward or something. They would be the ones that would be leading the charge. But what we see here is the first hint that something is off because where is David in the middle of all of this? He's not going off to war with them. A heart of lust can often start with idle hands. And David was neglecting his duty as the head of state and the head of his household. When every other man was engaging with the enemy, he was being lazy. Verse 2. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. bathing. The woman was very beautiful. You know, you could look at this and you could think, well, why on earth was she doing that in front of everybody? But scholars look at that word, and if you look at what that word actually means, it can also mean just to wash off, right? So maybe she was just washing her face before she was going to bed at night. Whatever it was, David saw this. David sees her. He notices that she's particularly beautiful. She wasn't necessarily doing anything wrong. David still has a choice at this point. He may have glanced upon it. It got the attention of his heart, but he didn't stop there. This glance became a gaze. Look, look for every one of us, whatever that thing is, that our heart is going to be tempted to say, that's got a grip on my heart. I want that in my life. And there's lots of things that qualify that way. There's going to be a point where we see something and it activates something in our heart. The person that's wearing that thing, the new air fryer that just came out and I've got to have it, the latest model of the electric car, or hey, there's this new house and if we could just reposition our finances, we can get more square footage in this, in this case. When, when we see something and, and maybe you don't even mean to see it, it's a link that you didn't even mean to come across we have a decision to make. Will that glance become a gaze? Lust is the sin of the second look. There are a thousand ways that David could have gotten out of this one. Instead, he just, he just stayed there and he lingered. When there should have been a flag on the field in his heart, he lingered. James tells us, that there's always a way out of the temptation, that there's nothing that you or I are going to experience that is unique, that it's all common to man, but that God is faithful. He will always provide a way out. Let's listen how David then reacted. Verse three, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. 
Now, Uriah is, is one of David's uh, like Navy SEALs. He's a Delta Force member. He's a, he's a soldier in the army. Bathsheba is home alone. Uriah is literally out fighting the battles that David should have been fighting while he was at home, a coward. David wasn't willing to go out and fight. And once again, David didn't take the out. So this is what happens, verse 4. David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. And David probably thought, look, this is a one-time deal. No harm, no foul. It'll be this is one-time thing, and then we'll cut it off. David probably didn't expect that Bathsheba would get pregnant. They never do. David wouldn't expect, he probably never thought that he would be so sinister as to arrange then that Uriah would come home, but Uriah wouldn't lay with his wife, and so David couldn't even pin it on Uriah. He never thought, David never thought that he would be so twisted as to then put Uriah on the front lines of the battlefield and then have the army pull back so Uriah alone would be killed. David never thought for one moment that this moment of freedom, this moment of weakness would so deeply destroy and tear apart this innocent person's family. David never thought that he'd have Uriah killed and that after Bathsheba then mourns the loss of her husband, she comes and David marries her. But God so loved David that he sent the prophet Nathan to confront and rebuke David because of his sin. This is what happens in 2 Samuel 12, the next, the next chapter. It says, The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, and this is where Nathan is just so wise in how he confronts David. This is, this is fascinating. He says this. He says, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it and grew up with him and his children. It shared his food. It drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or his own cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come. Instead, what did he do? He took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he had done such a thing and had no pity. David was rightly angry because that person had created the poor man and his life like it was consumable. And that's what lust does. It turns other people into something to be consumed, someone to be used, but people are not consumable. And when you treat someone like it is, it's going to destroy your relationships and it's slowly going to destroy a part of you. Then David says, uh, Nathan says to David, listen, David, you are that man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your arm. I gave you all Israel and Judah. As if this had been too little, I would have given you more. David, have I failed to provide for you? David, if you would have needed any more, I would have given it to you. Listen, 
Lust is fundamentally an issue and a sin of unbelief. It's saying this, God, I don't trust you to deal with this issue of contentment or satisfaction or need for connection or need for significance, so I'm going to do it. It's saying my spouse isn't enough because he doesn't romance me like my need or she doesn't fill my needs because she always has a migraine or she doesn't perform the way that I want her to. And I'm convinced that when we're drawn into lust like that, it's because it's easier to find satisfaction in the fakeness of an image than it is to deal with a real human being that has feelings and thoughts, who has to process through their insecurities and hurts. It's just easier to click on the link, to buy the thing, to wait for the box to come in the mail. In reality, what we really want is a robot. We don't want a relationship. But God's not called us to robots. He's recalled us to be with real human beings who require patience that you have to invest in, that you have to be vulnerable with, that you have to deal with your own insecurities, your own shortcomings. They get to walk alongside you and you them and together you become greater together. So Nathan brings this to David. David, you have sinned not just against Uriah. You've not just sinned against Bathsheba, but you've sinned against God because you did not trust him. Verse nine, why do you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his sights? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. And then what happens is a tremendous fallout in David's life that led to all sorts of negative things. His son ended up trying to take his kingdom from him. And ultimately, his unborn son lost his life because of it. Here's what happens with any sin, and lust in particular, is that we see this thing and we want it because all we see is the worm, but we never see the hook. All we see is the bait, but we never see the hook. I, I need this thing in my life, but we don't see what it does to our hearts. So can I ask you guys this question as then we round third base and we're going to bring it to another place in a second, but let me ask you a question. Do you seek to fulfill God-given desires in ungodly ways? Let me ask you this way. How do you seek to fulfill godly-given desires in ungodly ways? When you see the thing that you want, do you see the worm? Or do you see the hook? Do you see the bait? Or do you see what's behind it? Unfortunately, many times people don't see the, the hook until they've already taken the bite and now they have the scars to show it. It's my story. Moms and dads, will you do everything you can to fight for your kids? Because here's what I know. There are not many adults that can handle having the internet in their pocket at all times, much less an 8-year-old or a 12-year-old or a 16-year-old. Dads, let me listen, listen to me, dads. Will, will you do everything you can to fight for your children to keep them from having those hooks of lust pulled into their heart? Will you, will you make sure that there's no unmonitored internet access in your home to fight for the hearts of your sons and daughters. Despite David's sin, despite the consequences of his sin, there was still hope for David. 
And what I want to speak to you this weekend is not just like feel bad, everyone has this problem, but I want to bring it to the surface so that it loses its power, but I also want to speak this, that there is hope for those that are stuck in the grasp of sexual sin or those who have been affected by it. There's hope for you. And the church has not done well with this because we put it in a category like we can't deal with this. It's somehow really, really shameful and it's irrecoverable. There's no hope for you. You can't admit you struggle with it. But listen, as a faith community, I want to be the kind of redemptive gospel community where people can find hope and healing to overcome this kind of thing. It doesn't mean that you need to stand up in your seat right now and say, this is my problem. But it means that we're going to be the kind of community that says, Hey, you're not going to freak us out if you have problems. We, we welcome that and we want to point you to Jesus. We're going to be honest about our struggles. That this weekend, listen, listen, maybe what you need to hear is that if you're caught in that, that there's hope for you in God. This is what David did. Psalm 51 is one of my favorite passages of Scripture in in the whole of the Bible. This is David now opening up his heart after all of this happened. This is what it says in Psalm 51. The top of it says, uh, a psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. This is how David then responds to God after his fall. He says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. That's what you feel when you're stuck in the pit. It's always before me. He says this, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Until you recognize that your sin is against God first, you'll never find victory from it. He says, Surely I was sinful at, at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in the secret place. He says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. And maybe you know what that feels like to say, I feel dirty and I don't feel worthy. And you want to say, God, I need your restoration. God, I need you to cleanse me from this. I did this thing and it was a long time ago or I did it last night and I don't want that to be in my life. God, cleanse me. Say these words of David. He says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. And then he says a verse that for me, that it was my weapon. And I think about when you hear a lie, be the samurai. This was my samurai sword, okay? And it was this verse right here. He says, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And then further in verse 16. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings, but my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God, you will not despise. Listen, David messed up, but then he took responsibility. He owned it. And he came to God with a broken and contrite heart. And this was the response that Nathan gave to him. In 2 Samuel, verse 12, verse 13. 
chapter 12, verse 13. Nathan says this. He says, the Lord has taken away your sin. And maybe that's what someone needs to hear. That there's this thing. It's in my life. I wish it wasn't there. It's a dragon on my back. It's a part of my past. I wish it wasn't there. God, I'm broken before you. God always responds to brokenness. Blessed are the poor in spirit. He opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He always responds giving grace to people that humble themselves. There is hope for those that humble themselves before God. There's hope. Now this is just part one of a, two parts to this conversation that there's hope for those that are stuck. And next week we're going to talk about how not to get stuck or how to get unstuck in the middle of all of this. Tremendous hope, tremendous power. Whether you have issues, and here's what I've learned, whether you've had issues of, of depression or lust or, or just filling those anxieties of your heart by running to these things, the same strategy that's true for lust is true for those things. It's this process that the church fathers called mortification. And we're going to talk about three principles that help us overcome these things. Because here's the thing. David never planned to fall like he did, but he never planned not to. And so as brothers and sisters, followers of Christ, we just don't want to plan to like, hey, I don't know if this is ever going to happen. We want to plan not to have this happen in our lives. So you don't want to miss this. It's not just a pathway for freedom from sin, but all sorts of lusts of all sorts. Let me pray, and then I want to just declare, um, because I know statistically what the truth is about even a group our size, and we want to declare together, whether for you or for someone else in your life, the victory that is possible in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word, that it affects these places that we don't even want to bring or bear in front of others. Things that we would rather stay hidden, but when it stays hidden, it just continues to have power over us. God, you don't want that to be the case. You've asked us to bring it into the light, and so I pray for those that may have large or small issues, God, that there would be that courage to bring someone else, a life group leader, an accountability partner, a trusted spiritual mentor into this, and the enemy is going to speak all sorts of lies to them in these moments. God, give them the courage and the humility and the teachability to step into that, God. Help us to see where our hearts are prone to wander, where we are prone to seek satisfaction for the desires that are built into us in ungodly ways. God, and help us to see that even these things that the enemy pushes us down with, God, that you can take these ashes and turn them into beauty God, that you can have victory for those that are even in the darkest places. Oh God, may it be true. We love you, we praise you, we worship you in Christ's name. Amen.